Last week, you, we were in uh, Acts 20, and we looked at Paul's time in Ephesus. So I am not going to continue with Acts, but I really wanted to drill down a little bit from Acts 20, because you remember uh, while Paul was in Ephesus, you know, he spent three years there and was uh, having uh, a, a broad ministry with everything going on in Ephesus, but also in other churches, and especially in Corinth. And so, you remember, Lance spent some time last week walking over uh, four letters written to the church at Corinth. Uh, the first letter was what he called a non-extant letter, letter that we don't know, it's not in the canon. And uh, some people refer to it as the secret letter just because Paul makes reference to it, but there is no record of it. There's no record of that letter. And then, uh, and he wrote that to address some issues and confront some issues, but then he needed to clarify some issues. So the second letter that he wrote is 1 Corinthians. And then there was a severe letter that he wrote in dealing with them. And finally, when he was on his way back to Corinth, uh, right before he went to check on them in Corinth from Troas, he wrote a fourth letter, which we have as 2 Corinthians. So I, I just I wanted to, to look a little bit at some of 1 Corinthians, just because when you think what kind of issues were uh, on Paul's mind while he was praying for the church in Corinth, what kind of issues were they dealing with? And what kind of, uh, how does it relate to us? Or how does it fit in our frame of reference today? And so when you look at um, what was going on in the church in that first century, uh, we find that there were a lot of superficial followers of Jesus Christ. Even in John 6, uh, Jesus said uh, he had some disciples that were abandoning him. And he said, uh, will you go away also? As he addressed his disciples. And Peter told him, he said, to whom shall we go? You and you alone have the words of eternal life. So uh, there are issues of people being around the fellowship of Christ, following Christ, but then abandoning him when the message got hard or the walk got difficult or their journey looked tough. And so we start finding early on that there's a mark for a true Christian. And a mark for a true Christian was somebody that loved the words of Christ, loved God's word. Ultimately, we could say they loved the scripture. Uh, they loved the promises of the Scripture, but they also loved the commands of the Scripture and willing to be obedient to them. So, um, the church, God's church, has always been a place where people hungered for His Word and had a desire for His Word and the truth of the Bible. Uh, even when we, we studied, uh, right before Christmas, we were studying 1 Thessalonians. And when you look at First uh, Thessalonians, uh, the first chapter, verse 4, it says, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. Uh, as Paul wrote the church at Thessalonica, he said, God cho chose you. And he says in verse 5, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. But we start seeing there that they're brethren loved by God because God chose them. And in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, For this reason we also constantly thank God when you received the word of God which you heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is the Word of God, which performs its work in you who believe. So they accepted, at Thessalonica, they accepted the Scriptures as the Word of God. 
and the work that it was doing within them. So there's a, a real issue, even in that first century, about the Word of God and the real defining issue between a true follower of Christ and a superficial follower of Christ was their draw to God's Word and their acceptance of God's Word. Uh, back in 1986, I went to the Congress on Biblical Exposition in Anaheim, California. And it was kind of like the who's who of preachers. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce, Ray Steadman, you know, a lot of guys from Dallas Seminary. It was, uh, but one of the main guys that I was really drawn to was uh, a guy by the name of J.I. Packer. And J.I. Packer... Uh, spoke at that conference, and, it, and I was just like, I, I couldn't get enough because the whole conference is on expositional preaching and how important it is and how critical it is for us today. Uh, but Packer was one of those theologians, and he just really just died a few years ago. He, you know, he lived to, in his 90s. But uh, he really understood what was going on in the church. And he wrote, uh, he wrote a preface to a book called The Christian Directory that was written by Richard Baxter, a Puritan in the 1600s. And uh, in, this, his, in his introduction, Packer characterized uh, the evangelical church today in this way. He said, evangelicalism is egocentric, Zany, simplistic, degenerate, half-magic spell nonsense, which is all the world sees when it watches religious TV or looks directly at the professed evangelical community. He goes on to say that our how-tos, how to have a wonderful family, financial success in a Christian way, how to cope with grief, life, passages, crisis, fears, frustrating relationships, and what not else, gives us a formula to be followed by a series of supposedly simple actions on our part and painting by numbers. He compared that to the great work of Richard Baxter, and Baxter is who he wrote his Ph.D. dissertation on when he was at Oxford. And uh, Baxter is the guy that said, I'm a dying man preaching to dying men. So he's one of those Puritans that just, those guys thought deeply, thought richly. And um, when Packer wrote and compared Baxter's work to contemporary evangelistic church, he said, uh, Baxter's book is a high level of intelligent, Bible-based, theologically integrated wisdom with unfailing, unimpaired clarity that is dazzling to the mind. I mean, where do people go for dazzling interpretations of Scripture? <laughs> where do they go for Bible teaching that is highly accurate, intelligent, theologically rich, sound, integrated, clear, and dazzling in truthfulness? When you think of Puritans and the way they thought, and, and it is recognized that they interpreted Scripture in a way that would be profound in the, their thought and in their depth and in their richness of it. It's kind of like we deal with superficial today compared with real depth of the past. And we wonder where's the, you know, where's the disconnect in the church today? Um, R.C. Sproul uh, died in 2017. And uh, I remember... They live-streamed his funeral service, so I watched his funeral service live-stream, and it was just, once again, it was kind of like a who's who of his contemporary friends that were at, at his funeral service. But Sproul said, our culture is embedded in proud mediocrity. And he said, that should be obvious to everyone. While there are still hard-working scholastic minds in science and technology, and researchers doing hard, tedious labor in the fields, the culture has in general settled for what is quick and cheap, junk music, junk art, and junk thinking. 
Our culture is far too easily satisfied and entertained. Excellence, truth, and real beauty are the great triad of virtues that are now replaced by funny, cool, and cute. He said, we get mediocrity because we want it and we actually crave it. When you think about the church uh, in Corinth, uh, there was a serious problem there that Paul had to address. And the serious problem was that the church loved worldliness. Uh, They were unwilling to divorce the culture around them, and they embraced the culture around them and tried to blend it in to their faith. And Paul, while he's in Ephesus and he sees this problem and he's, he's heard some of their concerns of the church in Corinth and he's addressed some of those concerns, uh, he predicted that that's the way things would be. He said in the end times, people are going to want to have their ears tickled. And there's a lot of that now. And there, there's a then and now there's a a clear tendency to eliminate the transcendent, eliminate the biblical, eliminate the theological, and uh, eliminate the truth of Scripture. Uh, They did and we feed on uh, mediocrity. Uh, crowds are hungry for mediocrity, and that's what we tend to give them because that will satisfy their appetite. And, and, and so the church today tends to give people exactly what they want, superficiality. You know, with pop culture, uh, Christianity serves non-believers just fine. Uh, people today don't want to take the Bible seriously. Uh, so why should the church take it seriously? Uh, you know, pastors seek uh, cleverness and creativity rather than style demand, that demands a rigorous study of the Scripture. Yeah, I can't tell you, I have friends that uh, hold church conferences on how to be creative. It's not how to study the Bible, how to preach the Bible, but how to be creative and how creativity is what's going to draw uh, crowds. And, and, and so when you look at the difference between the Puritans in our church today and you look at what Paul was calling the church to in his day compared to what they were doing in Corinth, you see the reason for his letters. Uh, one other thing, one, one more thing from J.I. Packer. He says, it doesn't seem possible to deny that the Puritans were the strongest just where the evangelical Christians today are weakest. Here, we meant, here were men of outstanding intellectual power in whom the mental habits fostered by sober scholarship were linked with a flaming zeal for God and a minute acquaintance with the human heart. All their work reveals this unique fusion of gifts and grace. Where the Puritans called for order, discipline, depth, and thoroughness, our temper is one of casual haphazardness and restless impatience. We crave for stunts, novelties, and entertainments. We've lost our taste for solid study, humble self-examination, disciplined meditation, and unspectacular hard work in our callings and in our prayers. Again, where the Puritans had God in His glory as a unifying center, our thinking revolves around ourselves as if we're the hub of the universe. So, with that kind of uh, feeling today, that's why I felt like we ought to take a look at what Paul was trying to deal with in uh, Corinth. And it really wasn't even a new message for them. If you go back to um, um, Amos, Amos chapter uh, 8. You remember Amos is this prophet that uh, stormed in Samaria, uh, the capital of the northern kingdom uh, of Israel. 
He was a prophet of doom that repeatedly kept saying uh, all the way through his prophecy that God's about to judge. And the whole book is one of pronouncing divine judgment. But in verse 11 of Amos 8, it says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. It goes on in verse 12 and says, People will stagger from sea to sea and from north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. So Amos predicted a famine in the land, and it was a famine of the word of the Lord. And that's really what we have today. We have a famine of the word of the Lord. And uh, it's this famine of God's word. Uh, God's word becomes more and more scarce. And so when we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this is where we're going to deal with you know, why the world really rejects the Word. And there's a real contrast in this section that we're going to examine between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. And so we're going to look at the end of chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, and go into a little bit of chapter 2. But to, to set the context for this section... It's real interesting if you look what comes immediately before this passage. Uh, In in the first part of uh, chapter 1, Paul addresses his reason for writing. And uh, and he said, in verse 11, he says, I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. So there were quarrels going on within the body, and they were identifying. One was saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I of Cephas, I of Christ. And Paul goes on to say, has Christ been divided? So there were factions within the church where they were kind of, I'm going to identify with Cephas. I'm going to identify with, you know, Jesus. I'm going to say I'm, I'm part of Paul's camp. And Paul goes on in that very in the following verses to say, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you because I don't, you, I don't want you following me. It's not about following men. It's about being Christ-like and saying, I want to have the mind of Christ. So you have that in verses, in that first section of, of chapter 1 and verses 1 through 17. And then in, in chapter 3, he says, I can't speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh. And... Uh, And in verse 3, he says, There is jealousy and strife among you. Are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? For one says, I'm of Paul. Another says, I'm of Apollos. And are are you not mere men? So here's this quarrel. There's this divisions. And sandwiched in between these two passages on quarrels and divisions are these verses I want us to look at tonight in, in verse 18 of chapter 1 down into chapter 2. And uh, when you look at the issues that are going on here in uh, chapter 1, verse 18, to all the way through chapter 2, you're going to see the word wise or the word wisdom uh, used 20 times. You're also going to see another repeated word, and it's foolishness, and it's, it's used at least six times. So you have, you're going to have this contrast between what is wise or what is wisdom and what is foolishness, and also a contrast even within wisdom, the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of men. So uh, when we look at the wisdom of God that's revealed in Scripture, the good news of the cross... Uh, we're going to see the word of the cross and the wisdom of God and the testimony of God. Now, we understand that non-believers don't believe the Bible. They have no interest in it. They can't believe the Bible because they don't have a heart for it. And when we look at how God creates an appetite within us 
for him and his word. And then he's the one that satisfies that appetite. Until he creates that appetite, they have no heart for it. They have no desire for God's word. They don't understand it. And, and when you look at verse 18 in chapter 1, it says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Now when it says it's foolishness, uh, the Greek word uh, for foolishness is moron. And it, and it means really stupid. It means pointless. Uh, it's unreasonable. And so the message, the word of the cross, is uh, unreasonable to those who are perishing. And so when you look at the unreasonableness, uh, think about what the early Christians were preaching in the Roman Empire. Even Paul's message as he's taken these missionary journeys that we've been examining as we walk through Acts. His message is that uh, God, the one true eternal God, became a Jewish man. He lived in Israel. He was rejected by his people. He lived in a nondescript town. He was crucified by the Romans. He rose from the dead and he's the world's only savior. So this Jewish man born in Israel, rejected by his people, crucified by the Romans is the one true eternal God. So when they look at that, they see what the early Christians are preaching throughout the Roman world that Jesus was rejected by his own people, executed by Romans as a common criminal, and you claim that he's the eternal God, the Savior of the world, and he's going to come back and establish a kingdom. They considered that foolish. They considered that unreasonable. And so you put yourself in a position of a believer in the first century going to the Jewish or the Gentile world on these missionary journeys, and you say, I want to tell you about a, name, a man named Jesus who's God's incarnate, born, God, incarnate, God who is God incarnate, born in absolute obscurity, was in a manger, lived in Nazareth, totally rejected by his own nation as a false messiah, messiah handed to the Romans and executed. He is the eternal God and Savior. And he's going to reign over all the earth in his kingdom forever. So in verse 19, it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. So that comes from Isaiah 29, 14. And, and it's while people in their own wisdom, they look at the message of Jesus, they look at the truth of God's Word, and they consider it foolishness. God already in Isaiah said, I'm going to destroy that kind of wisdom. Now, the wisdom, when you look at the word wisdom here, this is a different, uh, this is sophos. It's a, it's a wisdom that is theocentric, rather than uh, anthrocentric. In other words, it's focused on God, not on man. That God's wisdom and the wisdom that comes from God is different than the wisdom that man expects or experiences. Theocentric wisdom is a wisdom that fears God, that reveres God, that humbles himself before God. And, and it doesn't imply brilliance. Uh, worldly wisdom uh, looks for scholastic training, but the wisdom spoken of here is a God-centered wisdom that means that you're able to apply the truth of God's Word in real situations. The wisdom of man says, I want to do what's good for me based on my experience, my knowledge, and my understanding. 
And it's that wisdom that God's going to destroy. The wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. And in verse 20, he says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? Uh, when it says that God's making foolish the wisdom of the world, uh, that's, that's another one of those contrasts that you have here and, and how he's going to deal with uh, the wisdom of the world. And that how he makes foolish is to, he, he makes something dull. He makes something uh, lose its taste or lose its purpose or lose its sense of functioning the way it's supposed to do. So he's going he's gonna to make that wisdom of the world lose its taste. And he's going to show the wisdom of the world uh, what it's really like. So when we look at this uh, wisdom uh, that God's going to deliver, it's different. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Now when he says... Through the foolishness of the message preached. And another word for foolishness in verse 21 would be absurdity. So the wisdom of the world looks at Christ and they consider the message of Christ absurd. But it's that message that God's going to use to save those who believe. And that word believe is the same word, you know, it means trust in, rely upon, place your confidence in. And, and you cannot get to know God through the wisdom of the world. If people think that they're going to be intellectually figure out God, if they, they just need to read enough books about God, they can just try to be like God, uh, you can't get there on your own. It's unattainable, it's unreasonable, but most people try. When you look at uh, the imams, the, you know, the Muslim imams, you know, they, people come to hear their teaching, they're going to they're gonna teach the Koran, they think that they're giving wisdom to the people in the mosque. And, and that's, that's the wisdom of the world, to think that you can try to attain some sort of relationship with God through the teaching of a man on how you treat other people. It's real interesting when you guys get on the plane to go to Israel in a, next week, is that a week away or the 20th? Uh, one of the things that you find generally, or that one of the things I found on my flight to Israel, was there were a lot of Orthodox Jews headed to Israel. And uh, they dress differently, they look differently, they're all dressed alike. And at certain times during the flight, they get up and say their prayers. They'll walk up and they'll rock back and forth. And uh, I, I sat next to a rabbi on my flight, and I was so excited because I was going to get to talk to a rabbi. And he wouldn't talk to me. He wouldn't answer any of my questions. He wouldn't carry on a conversation or anything. But he read the Scripture the whole way. You know, he had he had the Old Testament opened up in Hebrew uh, reading on the whole flight. You know, and it's the, the wisdom of this world says, I can work my way to God. I just have to do these things to get my way to God. And what God is saying is, I have this message that seems foolish to the world. It's absurd to the world. But I'm going to use that foolish, absurd message to turn the world upside down. And what they think is a way to God, I'm going to show that that's not the way to God. And he says, for indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. In Corinth, they were loaded with, with Greeks that were uh, hedonistic. They were, they were Greeks that loved uh, their flesh, that satisfied anything they could and use any lust of this world to help them even think that they could attain some sort of relationship with God. 
and and so they were that was their wisdom is that they they could use a temple of prostitutes to to help them worship uh, the the Jews asked for signs if you remember uh, in Luke eleven sixteen. Uh, the Jews were looking for a sign, and they said, show us a sign from heaven. Uh, they wanted this big sign from heaven to, to know that Jesus was their Messiah. And in Matthew chapter 12, uh, Jesus confronted that desire for a sign. In verse 38, he said, some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, yet no sign will be given but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus said, you want a sign? I'm going to be buried, but only for three days. You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. And that's the resurrection. Now, that's the sign that Jesus is going to give them is the resurrection. But they wanted this sign. It's amazing today how many people want signs they want to see something they want something from god i was watching an interview of a pastor last week and the the question came to him uh how did you uh realize that god wanted you to be a pastor and he said i was in university and i went out on an athletic field at night and i sat on a stump I looked at the heavens and I said, God, I don't know what you want me to do. If you want me to serve you, give me a sign. And he just looked up. And there was a shooting star. And he said, that was my sign. He said, but I'm a skeptic. He said, I was an engineering student, so I was scientific and I thought I needed more than just one shooting star so he said the next night I went out and I looked up to the heavens I said God give me a sign if you want me to serve you and he said there was just a flash of shooting stars all over and he says it was a Moses this he said it was a Moses moment I knew that God wanted me to be a pastor uh, folks just him saying that on an interview on TV makes other people look for some kind of sign from God that that's the way God's going to give them direction. And that's not what God says. That's not what God's Word has to say. But he's a pastor in our town. That's why I was watching him. <laughs> and, and, and it's all over the place. How do I make me feel better? Give me something. It's, I want this experience. And, and so... Paul knew that, you know, that the church in Corinth, they were having these quarrels, they were having these divisions, but what they needed to know was that God's Word is truth. And God's Word doesn't make sense in the world, but God's Word destroys the wisdom of the world. And, and that's, what, that's what his message is here. He says, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but what do we do? In verse 23, he says, we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, that's a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, it's foolishness. So both the groups that are in, in both, both predominant groups in Corinth are, are saying, you know, that Christ crucified is what really matters. And, and it, it matters for the, for the divisions within the church. It matters within the conflict that's going on in Corinth at the church there. And he said, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, sometimes that word called in the middle of verse 24 gives, makes us uncomfortable. But I'm telling you, God creates a desire within you for him, and then he satisfies that desire. You don't create it yourself. He does. I, you know, we have so many seeker-friendly churches where that's what they, how they identify themselves is that we're seeker-friendly. We try to create an atmosphere where non-Christians want to be. And if you're doing that, you're, make, you're, you're giving in to mediocrity. Uh, and... and to me, 
uh, I think that somebody talks about, you know, when you talk about repent, it, usually the repentant person isn't the person that's running toward God. It's the person that's running away from God, and God outruns him to get him and turns him around. You know, that, that, that God's the one that does the work in our lives to really call us in. He said, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So this message that doesn't make sense is stronger than any message that man has. And he says, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Now there's that look there uh, that you have this repeated phrase uh, three different times. Not many, not many, not many. And, and I think that it says that those that are making the proclamation of the gospel, you know, it is, you know, that they might be kind of called unremarkable people. I mean, we don't like to be identified as an unremarkable person. But he says, consider your calling. So he's talking about the Christian's calling. There were not many wise. So not many wise in terms of the world or in terms of God. But he says there's not many powerful or not many mighty. It means powerful or influential. There's not many noble. In other words, there's not many high-born people. He said, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. You know, when you think about the disciples that Jesus called to come and follow him, it's a pretty nondescript group of people. You know, it's, uh, when you look at the fishermen and you look at the tax collector, you look at, you, you look at the people that he said, come and follow me, and they left immediately and went and followed him. You know, you look at that group in the Gospels as we walk through Luke on Sunday mornings, and they don't look to be a real strong, influential, mighty band of brothers. You know, they look pretty inefficient. They look pretty scattered. And when they say, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? It looks to me like a bunch of kids trying to get first in line in, in the cafeteria. You know, I want to be the first. Let me get there. I want to, and that's like their childish behavior. But then when you come to Acts, like we've seen as we walk through Acts on Wednesday nights, when the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2, and then Peter preaches in Acts chapter 3, you see this transformation of a guy that was hiding by fire and denying Christ, you know, after the arrest of Jesus. And next thing you know, he's standing preaching and thousands are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. You see a radical transformation and God has taken the foolish to confound the world and destroy the wisdom of the world. And so it tells us God's chosen the foolish of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. So when you look at that, you know, who God has chosen, uh, how many of us want to raise our hand and say, I'm one of the not many. I'm one of the not many wise. I'm one of the not many uh, remarkable people. Uh, but I'm one of those that, uh, that God has called and God has chosen. And, and, and he says, I think verse 29 is fascinating because it's so that no man may boast before God. You know, that, that phrase there, no man may boast before God, you know, we all want to feel like we're uh, people who accomplish things. We all want to feel successful or like we've done something. You know, and, and there's an innate desire within the hearts of men to say, I had something to do with my salvation. You know, I'm a good person. I, I'm a fair person. I have, I'm a person of integrity. You know, uh, I, I cannot tell you how many men I've sat across from and they said, I'm not a bad guy. You know, no, you're, you're not a bad guy. You're a wretched sinner. 
You know, uh, it's just, I mean, in all honesty, you know, most people want to think, I'm just, I'm pretty good. And, and especially in comparison to what you see on the news. You know, that I'm, I'm not really bad at all. Uh, but the issue here is that no man may boast before God. All other religions of the world try to earn favor with their God. Christianity is the only one that says humble yourself, surrender, and give it up because you can do nothing. He can do it all. And it's all him. It's not you. Uh, and, and in verse 30 it says, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became the wisdom for, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification. So that, and here's the contrast with verse 29, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let no man boast before God that he's done it, but let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know, our role and our function is to boast in the Lord. So when the issue is going on in Corinth, and Paul has this burden on this church in Corinth because there's divisions and factions among them, there's disputes among them, he says, don't be a part of this group or that group. Don't identify yourself with this leader or that leader. Boast in the Lord. Because it's not you who did it. It's not those men who did it. It's the Lord who's done everything. And that's what you need to do. So how do you know it's by his doing? It's because of what God has done. And I love it, you know, in verse 27 where it said, God has chosen uh, the foolish things of the world to shame us. And then you look at the messenger. You know, you think, well, Paul's a pretty good messenger. You know, he's been on these missionary journeys. He has this heart. I mean, he's, by this point, when he's in Ephesus writing to Corinth, he's, man, he's been beaten a whole bunch. He's been shipwrecked some. You know, he's been driven out of town. He was driven out of Thessalonica, chased into Berea, run out of there. You know, he, he's one of those guys that's like tarred, feathered, and run out on a rail all the time. And uh, just because he came in and he told the, the truth, he took the wisdom of the world and turned it upside down and says, this is the wisdom of God, that Jesus is the Messiah. And, and, and so you look at how Paul came to them in the humble way Paul came to them in chapter 2. He says, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You wonder, what is our message to be? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Uh, that focal point that He has, even in, uh, in, in, in chapter 1, He said... I did not come to you in clever speech so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. So he said, I didn't want anything to be known except Jesus and him crucified. And he said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So he says, I didn't come with a clever set of ideas. I didn't come with a notebook of creativity on how you're going to do church. But I, I came preaching Christ in weakness, fear, and trembling. I, I didn't trick you with my words of wisdom, but I, saw, I revealed and demonstrated the Spirit of God and the power of God. And he said, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Of God. It's real interesting when you look at the pastors who fail in churches today, whether it's doctrinal failure, whether it's moral failure, whether it's financial failure, whatever the failure is, if they have a mega church, all of a sudden when they're not there, the church drops down and, and, and it's a lot smaller because it was built on following that man. It was built on following that pastor. And, and, and when you look at uh, a lot of pastors, they try to they promote themselves because they know that crowds will be drawn to them. And, and, and it's all about them. And Paul said, I didn't come in that manner. I came so that you trusted 
your, your, your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And he says, yet we do not speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but the contrast is, we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages of, to our glory. It says, the mystery is that yes, this Jew born in a stable, uh, in a man- laid in a manger, raised in Nazareth, you know, that was uh, rejected by his people, executed by the Romans, you know, resurrected on the third day is the Messiah, and that's God's wisdom in a mystery. You want to know the mystery? The prophecies that were given in the Old Testament scriptures that I taught you when I came to the synagogue, Paul says that mystery is revealed in Jesus Christ. You know, what the Old Testament revealed in Christ is the mystery. And and he says that's hidden in the wisdom of God. And it's been predestined before ages to our glory. And he says it's the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they knew who he was, they wouldn't have crucified him. But they didn't understand it. So even when a a Jewish authority could say, I find no fault in this man, they still crucified him. When no fault could be found in him, they still crucified him. The rulers of this age did not understand. Uh, The rulers of our age do not understand. The people that we're living around do not understand. Uh, The people in in Corinth did not understand. Uh, But verse 10 says... For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God, no one except the Spirit of God. Uh, He says, you know, it's God's Spirit. It's God who's going to reveal it. It's God that's going to reveal Jesus Christ to you. And, and, and he gives you that picture in verse 12 when he says, we receive not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. So that, and that so that is a key phrase there, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. It's not the spirit of the world, but it's the spirit who is from God. And that gives us the ability to know the truth and understand it and be drawn to it. When we think that uh, he came with a message that seemed unreasonable, uh, he came with messengers that seemed to be nobodies, and uh, he said that I'm going to destroy the wisdom of this world. Uh, Paul is communicating truths to the church at Corinth that they need to understand so they don't have those disputes and arguments among each other. They need to understand they are humble servants of a living God called by him, not through any merit of their own that they are purely an act of grace come from God and they should be dependent on Him and not be striving among each other and not be fighting among each other. And how do we live that out? How do we do that? Well, uh, he goes on and he closes out this chapter. Uh, He says... 
in verse 13, he said, We speak not the words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they, they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. There were problems in the church at Corinth. They had issues that had to be dealt with. So from Ephesus, Paul wrote this letter saying, let's look at who we really are. Let's, let's deal with the issues. Let's don't be divided among each other. Let's understand what's important. And what's important is we are, a, we are a people in need of a Savior that is foolishness to the world, but it's the wisdom of God. And we need to be a people who have the mind of Christ. You say, well, how do I get there? You know, we are... We live in a society that is very much like the society in Corinth where they reject the truth. They reject God. They would rather chase after other things than pursue the word of the Lord, the way of the Lord, and a walk with the Lord. And, and uh, there is a problem in our society, and we're not the problem, but we have the answer to the problem. And the answer to the problem is Jesus Christ. And the answer is having the mind of Christ so that you can be effective for Christ in a world that is openly opposed and against him. So it comes down, you know, there, there's a couple of prayers that you can pray. And one of them is in Psalm 25, 5. It says, lead me in the truth. Lead me in your truth, for you are the God of my salvation. Psalm 119, verse 18, says, Open my eyes that I may see the wondrous things out of your law. Uh, when we look at uh, how do I have that mind of Christ, it really comes back to that verse 30 of chapter 1 in 1 Corinthians. It says, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became the wisdom of God and the righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He is our redeemer. He is the one who is sanctifying us. He is the one who has made us righteous. And if we're going to boast, let us boast in the Lord, not in ourselves. Father, I thank you so very much that you are constant, that you are so steady and such a force of change in our lives that you have destroyed the wisdom of the world that captured us at some point. But you called us out, you made us your own, and you are transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. May we be a people who do not boast in who we are and what we've done and what we've accomplished and what we know. But may we be a people who always boast in you. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.